The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Great, so we're moving onward. Those who are joining in for the first time, a big welcome. We've been studying this wonderful set of teachings from the Buddha, really his most complete set of meditation instructions. I'm not sure complete is the right word, maybe most detailed set of meditation instructions. Often they're referred to as mindfulness of breathing, but remember, it's really important to remember, <clears throat> the breath is only the central part of the meditation in the first couple instructions. There are 16 instructions altogether. And uh, all of the remaining are just moving to include more aspects, mostly of the mind. Because of course the whole path is waking up to what we're not yet seeing about the nature of the present moment, the nature of our experience, and more specifically the nature of the mind here, the nature of the heart. So we're using our life and we're using the skillful means of our Buddhist practices to see what we're not seeing yet, to wake up. We don't have to wake up to what we already see clearly, right? We only have to wake up to what we're not seeing. And the Buddha discusses this, you know, in many different places in the suttas and the discourses. For example, in the Satipatthana, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, he instructs us to be aware, like, is this, one way it's translated, is this an enlarged mind, an expansive mind, a spacious mind, or a not-so-spacious mind? Is this a surpassable mind or a mind that is not surpassable? Like the awareness, the consciousness, the awareness of knowing is boundless. Meaning there's no place in the mind that isn't aware. Because right? the mind is aligning with the awareness, aligning with that recognition, oh, this is being known. Is this a mind that's concentrated, right? Or is this a mind that is still caught in reactivity? Is this a mind that's released? Still a mind with some self-centeredness operating. So it really kind of begs the question, well, what do we mean by mind or heart in uh, Pali? The word is citta, C-I-T-T-A, citta. And the key is, you know, because we want to start immediately thinking about, well, what is the mind? But fortunately, whatever it is that the mind or the heart, those words point to, it's got to be here and now. We're talking about something that's actual in our subjective experience right now. So we don't have to go outside of ourselves or outside of this moment. Any words, philosophical or otherwise, that we use, any instructions that we use, are only skillful or helpful if they are kind of a jumping off point to 
turning inward. Oh, the mind, this is the mind. What else would the mind be? Even though I'm seeing my computer and seeing some little rectangles on my computer screen and, you know, seeing the room and hearing what's here to hear and feeling the body, all this is something being known here and now. We don't say in the mind, but it's implied because that's where the knowing is. This moment is a moment of mind. So with this third set of four instructions, the Buddha is asking us to train ourselves to experience not the activity of the body or the activity of the mind, but the space of the mind, the space of the present moment, the space of knowing, in which the activity is being known. Now, subtle, in this case, and generally throughout our practice, subtle is significant. And you could say, it's a little simplistic, but we could say that the basic spiritual problem we have in life is that just through our conditioning, our habits, we're addicted to what's gross and therefore oblivious to what's subtle. And I'll just give some somewhat silly simile, you know, like if we eat those really intense and tasty, salty, spicy chips, you know, and there's like an almost infinite variety of something that's salty and crunchy and flavored. And it seems like over the years, you know, that those products, those chips, become crunchier and saltier and spicier. And if I'm eating those a lot, and then somebody hands me a kind of food that's more subtle, well, it just isn't going to do anything for me. Because my sense of taste has gotten conditioned by the grossness, not grossness in a negative way, Grossness may be in an intense, sort of base kind of way, by the saltiness, the crunchiness, the texture, the intensity of the flavors. And therefore, the mind, the sensitivity of taste is really not suitable for appreciating subtle tastes. And this, you know, we could say the same thing about conversations, kind of gross, provocative, you know, kind of conversations. Like some movies, you know, that use a lot of slapstick and are basically, are, you know, they're, they're not going to pull their punches. They're going to do anything silly that will get a laugh, right? <clears throat> And then there are movies, conversations, books, experiences that are subtle. And in a way, part of what we've been learning with these different sets of four instructions, we call them tetrads, the first four really about using awareness and cultivating a, a, 
<clears throat> our relationship with something relatively gross, the breathing body, the sensations of the body, this, the experience of the five senses, and harmonizing with this grosser aspect of our being. And then we move to the activity of the mind, of course, thinking and all the different aspects of the thinking mind, more subtle than the body, but still relatively gross. The emotions, the thoughts, the cognitive activity, the way we perceive experience. And we learn to harmonize with all of that activity of the mind. First set of four instructions, we're harmonizing with the body, bodily activity. Second set of four, we're harmonizing with the activity of the mind. The third set of four, what I'm talking about today, we're harmonizing, we're realizing, we're getting comfortable with, we're learning to trust, and we're learning we call it liberate, to liberate the mind or to release the mind, but actually it's, or another way of talking about it is we're allowing the mind to purify itself of all self-centered activity and the mind's dependence or confusion with that self-centered activity. Even Appreciating the stillness of the knowing mind is a little distortion, a little defilement. We don't, the mind doesn't require any identification, even with stillness, even with the quietness, even with the peacefulness. We notice the peacefulness we notice the quiet, we notice the sense of space in order to harmonize with it, to merge, to trust it, to let it be. We don't own it as a treasure. Oh, this beautiful mind, this still, silent, peaceful, quiet mind is me. These instructions around the third tetrad, the third set of four instructions, it's really about this releasing of the mind. We're releasing the mind of everything that's extra. And basically, everything is extra. Every conception, every idea is extra. So the mind in these, this, these uh, four instructions, the mind is learning to trust the releasing, the non-dependence. The mind doesn't need any prop whatsoever, including and especially it doesn't need the prop of conceptual meaning. Like even the conceptual meaning that I'm a meditator having a good spell during my meditation and things are getting really quiet, and that's really good. See, it doesn't even need any clinging, any identification, if those thoughts were to arise. It's not attending to those thoughts. Now, obviously, they're not neurotic, I mean, relatively speaking, 
we wouldn't consider those neurotic thoughts. But clinging or any sense that there is somebody who needs to be identified with those kind of thoughts, that's what we would consider extra. And in this training of experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating the mind, stilling the mind, and releasing or liberating the mind, we're teasing out, we're purifying, we're dropping, abandoning all of that self-centered activity. And when that is has been abandoned, there's a realization, this is the mind that is empty of all that activity, or empty of that identification, empty of all that clinging, all that identification. It's empty of it. And that's a realization, right? It's an insight to see, oh, this is the mind that is empty. That's what the Buddha's been pointing to, or these practices, rather, have been pointing to. Oh. Like in Christian terms, you might call that the face of God. I was reading somebody. You know, there's different, of course, different similes, different metaphors and different spiritual traditions, because this mystical insight, this opening to what's here and now, to the truth of the moment, always here and now, people have bumped into this forever, right? And then, of course, they always end up trying to share their experience with their language and their sort of conceptual meaning that's embedded in the culture that they've been conditioned by. So the stories and the metaphors and the similes are going to be as imperfect as the culture. So what the Buddha did, you know, with his deep insight, his deep liberating experiences, what made him a Buddha, like in this particular spiritual framework, is the capacity to create you could say a culture of awakening, like a language culture system that is about this letting go. So it has a little bit less pollution. It's not free of pollution than other cultural systems, other, you know, metaphors for freedom, spiritual awakening, mystical experience. It's really the language the technology of that language, you could say, is really developed for the sole purpose of supporting the mind's letting go. The mind seeing what there is to release. And therefore, releasing happens. And that's what we're <clears throat> working with or playing with in the third tetrad. And you know, a lot of what we looked at in the second tetrad is in, on a grosser level, seeing that the mind doesn't have to be identified with its thoughts about things. And the feeling, the feeling tone, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of what's happening in the moment. And there's, you know, this is an age old spiritual conundrum where we tend to look for freedom we do, most humans that aren't completely overwhelmed in life, we do sense the possibility of spiritual release. 
And so we go off on all kinds of searches. Just look at the self, the self-help industry. You know, we do have a sense that release, freedom, happiness is possible. So we tend to spend a lot of money checking this out and doing that and causes a lot of problems because we tend to look for that happiness that we intuit in all the wrong places, in all the predictable places, in the same place where we haven't found it, right? That, that country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places, searching for love in too many faces. It's a great set of lyrics. And that's what we do, of course. So, in some ways, ceasing that activity is a powerful start, where we have the sense that what I've been doing hasn't been helping. Get the rays of light behind me, it's not God. <laughs> it's a sunny day in Massachusetts. There's a old uh, wisdom teaching in the Sufi tradition, the kind of mystical tradition in Islam. And there's this uh, famous, probably uh, made-up character called Nasiruddin. Maybe he was actually a person at one point. And uh, Nasiruddin sort of had sort of the uh, person behind a lot of this funny, crazy wisdom, a lot of funny stories. And uh, one of them is he's out searching for a, a precious jewel that he had lost. And he's searching and he's searching outside of his house. Eventually, some of the neighbors start to help him. They're all looking there, looking there. Finally, one of the neighbors thinks to ask, well, where exactly did you lose this jewel? And he points to this little wooded area over there, you know, many feet away. And, he go, and then they, all the people go, well, why are we looking here if you lost it over there? And he said, well, there's really good light here, right? And you see that points to this aspect of our mind where we go back to the same places. How many times have we ended up disappointed by overeating or disappointed with watching too much TV or not that it wasn't, there wasn't something there in the eating or something there in the entertainment or something there in the sleeping or something, but it didn't really take care of the problem, the issue at hand, that the heart is uneasy and vulnerable. And there's some intuition that there's a resolution to that uneasiness of the heart. So that's why we talk about, and this third tetrad is really about this switching of allegiance. Because even there's so much good work with harmonizing with the body, harmonizing with the activity of the mind. What this third set of four instructions really make clear is this change of allegiance. We're taking refuge not in the activity of the present moment, but we're learning there's something else to come into allegiance with, to take refuge in. And that is the space, the empty, open, silent 
still space of the present moment. Right now. It's always here. You could call this being aware of the knowing mind or being aware of the conscious mind. But all the ways we talk about it are only helpful if they point in the here and now to a way of being, a way of relating to the suchness the empty space that's here. In part, we learn it as a, a foreground background shift. Like there's the periphery, the space of the present moment, but generally the mind has been transfixed on whatever the most provocative experience that's happening in the moment, some thought, some feeling in the heart, emotion, some sensation, some sound, right? In one moment after another, the mind, in a sense, grasps, clings to, identifies with some phenomena, whether it's a thought or a sense experience. And we're oblivious to the space of the present moment, even though it's just as much here as anything is here. But there can be this background foreground shift where we train the mind, which is the four instructions to experience, to gladden, to concentrate, and to release the mind. We're, that's, we're bringing what's been in the background into the foreground. And it's this learning to be open to what's subtle. And that's a game changer because we're normally transfixed by what's gross. That's what gets our attention. And that's kind of the legacy of being an animal. Animals are what we call, you know, beings, creatures that are transfixed with this gross level of sense experience, like the temperature of the body and that feeling of being hungry or that feeling of wanting affection, or to mate, or, you know, just these sort of grosser level of experience. And then as a social animal, humans, primates, or social animals, just as important as wanting to be warm is wanting to belong in the community. Because it's, it just goes hand in hand with survival. It's as important as being warm and feeding the belly and staying away from, you know, those predators that will eat us. Is being connected with others, being close with others, being able to trust others. Now with this training, you see why it's important to, to find, to uncover some relative safety because we're leaving this animal world behind in the sense of letting it go into the background. We're not repressing it. We're just getting interested in this, let's call it the spiritual realm. Not the realm of sense experience, but in Buddhist terms more, we'd call it the realm of recognizing the present moment, 
not the activity. That's the activity, the experiences, the objects we're letting go into the background. And what's coming into the foreground is the space, the knowing space, the silent, empty space of the present moment. And that's that process of releasing everything that's extra so that we can have that realization, that insight, this is the mind that is empty of grasping, empty of clinging, empty of attachment. Now, the mind might very quickly go back to identification and attachment, but something will remain. That memory, that experience of the mind free of clinging, leaves an impression. Even when we go back to our ordinary habitual ways of being identified with being a somebody who wants to become a somebody, who likes this and doesn't like that, right? That something is different. Each time we touch back into that realization, this is the mind empty of grasping, it changes us. That's how we know the practice works. We become different. <laughs> we're not the same person we were 10 years ago, five years ago. There's more space. There's more resilience. There's less reactivity. There's more creative, nimble responses when things get difficult in our lives, right? Because of this, these cumulative insights or these um, drop by drop, these insights, they change the mind, the heart's conditioning. So even when we're back into the habits of identification and attachment, it's almost like those habits become more porous, semi-transparent, less heavy, through this work with the third tetrad. We're really developing an insight. This is the mind that has released, that has let go of selfing, of self-centeredness, of grasping. Oh. And the mind sees, directly experiences, what it doesn't remember having ever experienced. So it's initially quite surprising. Because we can know intellectually that the path that we're, you know, this practice that we're doing is about dropping self-centeredness, dropping the dependence in all self-centered ideas and conceptions. But the experience of it is very different than being clear about the idea of it. It's like a weight we didn't realize the heart was holding is released. And there's that recognition to whatever degree, however clear it might be, each moment of that insight is what it is. It's as deep, it's as, um, <clears throat> as impactful as it is. But it always has that surprising flavor of recognizing some weight dropping away that we didn't even realize we were holding. 
And so the ongoing impression is this intuition that life, living, being, doesn't have to be so heavy, so tight, so restricted. So again, the, um, the four instructions that you can work with, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, concentrating, stilling the mind, releasing the mind. And with these four instructions, in a way where, I think I mentioned this last week, we're really hitting the same note or that's a little aggressive way of saying it, we're attuning to the same thing. It's not four different things. But as we attune to the experience of the mind, the experiencing the space of the knowing mind, the present moment, the more we attune to that, then gladdening will be how we strengthen that attunement. We appreciate it. In a way, we're sensing, we're intuiting the space of the present moment as a thing of true beauty. And then that's what stills or quiets, because it's something to trust, it's something to abide. It doesn't need anything. It's so, the reason it's beautiful is because it doesn't need anything. Everything thing is seen as extra. So the concentration process, the stilling process, is a trust in the nature of what's already here and now. It doesn't need you or me to do something. And this is hard because we've been reinforced for being a doer. And now we got to learn a different move call it trust, call it abiding, call it letting go. But that's the concentration process. It's, it's not a doing, it's more a letting go of what's extra. So that's why stilling might be a better word than concentrating for the third step here. But even stilling can have a sense of a doer. And it's more like, you know, those snow globes that got shook up. You don't have to do anything for that snow to settle. You just leave it alone, right? So, but, so in a way, leaving things alone is a doing, but it's a very special kind of doing, right? The leaving the heart alone, leaving the space of the moment alone. That's where the trust comes in, the faith, that there's something beautiful, that's the gladdening, there's something beautiful here that needs to be left alone to become very much what it already is. Because some of the dust needs to settle. And as the dust settles, the natural beauty, the natural purity, which is always here, but it was obscured by the dust, that settles. Ah, yeah. And that's where the mind releases, right? It releases the wrong idea that something is needed, that selfing 
that any neurotic activity whatsoever is needed. And so the mind realizes this is the mind without any of that grasping, any of that neediness. So in a sense, it's the mind that's independent, not dependent on anything. And of course, it would be wrong from a place where we haven't directly experienced to think that that's me or mine, <laughs> right? That doesn't enter at that time. That's precisely what's being released. It's not dependent on any conceptual construction whatsoever, which the resulting faith or confidence is really also not dependent, not so easily shook. So oftentimes stream entry, like a deeper insight into the nature of the heart, it's characterized, you know, the Buddha of the tradition says it's characterized by this absence of doubt. That's one of the ongoing lingering impressions that you you could notice. Oh, isn't that interesting? I don't really have doubt in the nature of this, not intellectually, but actually. I don't have I don't have doubt. The mind might still, like a lot of dust, might have just recently gotten stirred up. And a lot of tendency to be a neurotic human being might be active in this body and mind. But that lack of doubt could still be present. Yeah, there's a lot of dust. There's a lot of neurotic, neurotic activity. If it gets acted out, there will be karma. There will be consequences. But it's not self. It's not me or mine. But it's real. It's nature. So this is sort of, can be the result of the deepening insight, not the full, complete, unsurpassed awakening, but well along the path of this insight, this deepening insight. So I'll be teaching the next couple of weeks and we'll continue, we'll come back to this teaching on the third tetrad for a couple more weeks. And I've been putting, and Jessica's been putting into the chat, the uh, document that has some resources, including the cheat sheet, so you can have the 16 steps that make it easier for you to memorize. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.